on this episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with PSG Talk contributor Eduardo Razo about the passion and love of El Tree in Mexico and in the United States. It's an examination of how first-generation immigrants and second-generation Mexican-Americans reconcile with their heritage in this caustic political and social climate. We talk about the history of the Mexican national team and how it has grown to become the most dominant team on the continent, where it has been, and where it may soon go. I'm your host, Mark Damon. Join me as we examine Mexico's love for the sport and its beloved national team here on the World Cup Project. Eduardo Razo, welcome to the World Cup Project. Hey, Mark. Uh, I'm happy to have you. I'm glad that for you to have me here. Um, can't wait to you know, start discussing this uh, Mexico and, and how it relates to the World Cup. And I, I wanted to have this discussion because Mexico, as a footballing nation, I think at times can be both oversaturated and undersaturated in the market in the sense that uh, it's it's a team that essentially shares the shares the spotlight with the United States national team in this country and for very good reason now let me start off first by just letting you introduce yourself talk a little bit about your upbringing and your background and explain to the people why you love the game of football so much. Yeah. Um, well, first, um, I'm not sure if anybody knows, but I am a second-generation Mexican-American. Um, my mom was born here, uh, but my dad was uh, was from is from Mexico. So, um, you know, that's uh, a little bit of my, uh, I guess, origins. Um, as far as soccer goes... Uh, honestly, I'm a late bloomer when it comes to that. Um, I, I followed Mexico, obviously, in the World Cup because, you know, living in Los Angeles every four years um, in a Mexican, in a predominantly Mexican neighborhood, that's all you're going to see for for one month um, in the summertime. So, but over the last four years, um, it's grown for me to just follow, follow soccer. I mean, I can... Obviously, I, I write and root for PSG, but um, I enjoy just watching the game now. Like it can be any club, any level, and it's just grown, um, grown from there. I would have to say that I'm a late bloomer in that sense too, and that I really started following it in high school, and I watched the World Cup again, and, and I think I and I really this is why I wanted to do the World Cup project because I think for so many of us. The World Cup is that first introduction to world football. Like, and, I, and I've said this on other podcasts before. Like, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I didn't really know that there were like club teams and that there were these leagues and everything. I just knew that every four years, these guys showed up out of nowhere and played this really important big tournament. And they played this game that I didn't really understand, but I liked. So I can totally relate to that. But I really want to just kind of dive into that sort of living in a neighborhood in Los Angeles where it's predominantly Mexican, predominantly Mexican-American, and what that feeling is like every sort of four years when you were growing up to sort of see a community just sort of um, go crazy for a month. Yeah, um, 
every four years that you see uh, Mexican, you know, flags either on cars or outside people's apartments, homes, and it's just it's it's, it's captivating. Um, uh, I live in a in the neighborhood in Los Angeles here where um, people unofficially, though, anytime Mexico wins in, in the group stage or advances past the group stage, you feel a little a little mini parade. I mean, it's just people are really captivated when they play. Um, it's just it's, it's the whole the whole neighborhood stops. I mean, I can hear um, people's televisions. Um, they have uh, viewing parties outside at least. Every other house um, is outside with a TV, so it's just it's it's and it, almost every television is in sync, so everybody either boos, cheers um, simultaneously, and and it's just for me it's it's it's, it's very pride um, that 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 I get to see this and experience this because not not many there's not a lot of environments where where you can go outside your neighborhood and everybody's television is on the Mexico. And, and that's fascinating too, because it's, and it, this is kind of dumb of me to say, but I, I say it to make the point, you're not in Mexico. You're in Los Angeles. You are in the United States of America. And just really quickly, what part of Los Angeles were you born in? Uh, I was, Born in, if anybody who's uh, familiar with, um, I was born in Inglewood, California, but I was, I've been pretty much raised all over LA. I mean, I grew up in South Los Angeles, but I also went to high school out in the Valley area near Hollywood, North Hollywood, if anybody under, um, understands the yeah. geographics of Los Angeles. How is, so, how is South Los Angeles like? Uh, it's, it's over, I mean, I get the movie, I mean, the movie's painted in a bad light, but to be honest, it's, it's just hardworking people that, you know, try to make their, you know, give their kids a better living, like my dad, I mean, you know, he tried to give us a better living, it's, it's not all that you see in the movies where it's gang riddled and, 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 and just, you know, poverty, um, it's just people trying to make, you know, trying to make a living, and I mean, that's why, you know, I was, uh, that's a high school. You know, I went to high school in the Valley area of LA. Still, so, um, I, I, my upbringings, I wouldn't have. Um, it's it's made me, um, I guess, the person I am today. And um, when you lived just all over LA, and I'm curious, how many just football, soccer, impromptu games did you drive by, or did you walk by over time? Because I just, Saturday. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say Saturday, uh, like, well, personally, my brother was in soccer. Pretty much all, you know, we, I mean, we're just a year apart, so he pretty much grew up at the, until high school playing soccer. So, um, up until, like, I was a teenager, we would have to go to his soccer games either Saturday or Sunday, and the parks would be filled with games. Um, at least from the parks that he would go to, there was at least three soccer pitches. And all three of them would be filled and up until probably nighttime, whether it be adults, kids, um, preteens, teenagers. There was always games Saturdays and Sundays. Those were always the um, summertime, I guess, spring, summertime. You know, those were where's the those were the, uh, the the early memories of soccer that I that I can recall growing up. And do you remember what the first World Cup you experienced? The first one you were sort of cognizant for? Uh, 
not Mexican related or Mexico related. Um, like the first one I can like recall, like little bits of memories would be '98. Obviously, I remember that's um, Senadine's dance um, uh, header to uh, help France win, you know, their World Cup in '98 against Brazil. So that's like one of the first early, early memories that I can recall um, for soccer, just in general. It would be that World Cup in France in '98. And that would assume, and I'm assuming in that case that you were sat in front of the television for that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. My dad, um, he, he, I remember um, he had, uh, he was one of those that would put the TV outside and, and either family members or any neighbors that wanted to come by and watch it. Like that's how I remember that World Cup, um, and that's like one of the first memories I took away from it. And how big of a soccer fan is your dad, or was your dad? Uh, he, he always, I mean, he's drifted in and out, but, you know, like, like many Mexicans, once it's, it's, if it's the World Cup, like, everything stops. Like, he'll, he'll watch A, no matter time or day, he'll either find, he'll either, you know, try to get the family together or get some sort of relatives together or neighbors or anything like that together and watch it. You know, he's just, he, he's really into, you know, the Mexican national team. Uh, which I, I think talks to the culture of not not just mexico or or mexican americans but of uh latino americans latin americans uh south americans in general and the united states is at that point where the world the united states doesn't stop for the world cup parts of it do for the national team i remember you know big united states football matches but it's not in that same category it doesn't have that same um, intensity to it. And it brings me sort of to this kind of theory and thesis that I kind of have put into my mind, which is that the United States really has two national teams. And you can go back to the 1800s when the United States took essentially a third of Mexico which now would be the southwestern United States. And what has sort of transpired over the last 100 years, and even more specifically the last 30 years, is that those population centers, those major cities, San Antonio, Phoenix, um, Los Angeles, major Mexican-American populations. And if you look at, and I'm going to bring up the stats now, because I had to sort of read this to really believe it, although when you think about it, it's not that surprising. In 2017, guess how much more percentage-wise Mexico uh, games played in the United States drew over United States actual United States football games in the United States? I, I think it has to be at least maybe a good chunk, maybe 40% higher than the average uh, uh, football game. 48. Nearly half. And, and I really think about it. There's no other dynamic like that on the planet Earth where the national team of a country is being outdrawn by somebody else's national team in that country. And I just want you to kind of speak to that. And I think the word is passion, but I'll let you sort of, you know, go from there. Yeah. And just speak about 
how that even is possible. I think, well, personally, my upbringing, my dad, um, I guess, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of all Mexicans, but I know a lot of Mexicans pride themselves on passing down their cultures and passion. I mean, my dad, that, that's, that's the thing. He, he, he always, he never, he never made us forget where we came from and uh, I guess his upbringings as well. And that's one of the things that, that gets translated to younger Mexican-Americans that were born here. Um, and I don't want to say Americanized, but, you know, to put it in, in, in layman's terms, most of us, you know, we are a part of, you know, an American culture now. Right? And the thing is, most Mexicans that were born in Mexico and then now have kids here, that have grown up here, uh, they install, uh, I guess I'm not going to say priorities, but they install uh, cultures or, or beliefs in them that, you know, just never forget where we come from, never forget where, you know, you come from. And I think that's how the Mexican national team gets passed down to younger generations that would that probably have never even been to Mexico because there are um, some some. Mexican-Americans have never stepped foot in Mexico yet root for the national team, you know, just like their parents have and just like their grandparents. It's, it's something that's been, you know, handed, handed down generation to generation. And I don't think that's something that's going to go away anytime soon. It really, I don't think people, especially, and, 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 you know, not to make this overly political, but to, it sort of, it is what it is especially very white parts of America, kind of don't understand that sort of... Um, they mis- they mistake that sort of passion from where you come from, from for some sort of disloyalty, I guess. And yeah. it's rooted in so many things that we, we could spend five hours discussing, but just sort of even to hit the surface of it, just the... And I've seen this before, just in my in my upbringing, just sort of in Westchester County, New York, which is one of the richest counties in the in the in the country. I'm not necessarily that wealthy, but you go and you drive around, and there's certain areas where you have some of that sort of influence, and it's just. I think certain parts of the country just don't realize sort of what that means to sort of have that dual loyalty. Like, I guess, and it's hard to put it this way, but that dual loyalty, that sort of Americanism, but also that connection to another country and roots. And you can somewhat say Italian-Americans or Irish-Americans, but it's not really the same thing. And I kind of want you to just sort of explain why. Because it's it's similar, but it's not the same. Yeah. Um, well, um, I, my my opinion on that, or my view on that, um, I would say because uh, it's personally, I think it's because. And and part, it, it, it is it's a difficult thing to go through. I just I just kind of believe that. Unlike sort of the Italian Americans or the um, Irish Americans or any other sort of whatever you want to call it, blank Americans, I think Mexican Americans are still in that, and you can speak to this more than I can, but 
I think they're still in that place where the assimilation isn't quite total. In you, it, it's not that like Italian Americans look at their heritage, and it's almost in a safe way of we're fully American. We we don't have to feel any sort of shame, quote unquote, looking yeah. at our heritage. We can sort of safely celebrate it. We have Columbus Day. We have St. Patrick's Day. But for Mexican-Americans, there really just isn't that. There isn't that sort of, I think, complete cultural acceptance in this country, which it's led to all sorts of things. But yeah. I'll, I'll just let you go on yeah. from there. Oh, okay. um, yeah, no, um, I totally agree with what you just said. Um, I guess, you know, I, let's just go with St. Patrick's Day. Um, uh, Irish-Americans celebrate St. Patrick's Day, um, you know, on March 17th, and... And they can go, and that's fully accepted. That's one of the, I guess I'm not going to say holidays, but it's one of something that was brought over from, from Ireland that's widely accepted by white Americans. Um, uh, not, nowadays, um, you know, uh, single de Mayo, even though it's not, you know, I don't want to get into that, but it's <laughs> something that has been embraced by other, you know, other races in this country, albeit just for drinking purposes. But, um, like, I, I'm trying to, I'm not going to divert too much on this, this uh, topic, but the movie Coco, um, it brought to light, you know, one Mexican, or, you know, I would say Mexican, but Hispanic tradition, um, when it comes to, like, Dio de los Muertos, that not a lot of people outside of, of Mexican, uh, Mexican-Americans or Mexicans knew about or, or really didn't understand what that whole, you know, tradition was about, um, but, you know, a movie like that has brought it, you know, some, has brought that tradition that we have and brought it to the forefront, albeit not totally accepted, but it's something that, that we, you know, celebrate that isn't, you know, pop, isn't that popular by you, by your normal everyday American. And because, and just as I look at it, I see the, and I've seen the growth of um, Hispanic culture in this country, and I do think it genuinely um, frightens people, certain groups of people. And again, it's really hard, because we're going to dovetail this back into football in a minute, so don't, just stay with us. Um, It's more... More dual language, um, more dual language signage, more um, more Spanish channels, more um, Hispanic and Latino Latina representation, and it's not at that point where people will go, okay, this is just sort of the natural demographic change that's happening in this country, and it's just sort of a fact of life that in about fifty years or so. Hispanics will be probably one of, if not, they'll probably either equal or surpass Caucasian Americans in the population in this country. So, if people are worried about, you know, a Mexican American celebrating their culture, they're really got, not going to like the next 30, 40 years what they see. And it kind of brings us to what I think is the rivalry that defines CONCACAF and is sort of the cultural clash, which is between the United States and Mexico. Now, just go into a little detail about 
just how that rivalry has gone from, I would say, Mexican domination to something that's a little more even and how that sort of how that sort of plays in the uh, soccer community of, I guess, the people that you know or yeah, anything yeah, you want to go in with yeah. that. Uh, oh, I cannot, I cannot wait to get into that. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's become a lot. Um, it's, it's, it's become a dividing line um, in, in terms for or Hispanic because you have the Mexican-Americans that I would say at least 70, 80% um, root for the, for the Mexican national team. I mean, you do have... My brother likes to root for both. He doesn't... I mean, he likes to... You know, he, he, he doesn't... You know, like to see either team, you know, lose. But he, he'll, he'll, he'll. If Mexico's playing, he'll obviously watch and root for them. And if the U.S. is playing, obviously he, he'll watch and, and want them to do well as well. But you know, there's Mexican Americans here that just not strictly Mexican national team. But then, as you said, Hispanic. I mean, I know a lot of people are culture shock, but you know, it's just not Mexican. Um, L.A. is full with. Um, Salvadorian Americans who obviously root for the United States national team, and that little friction between some uh, communities, whether it be Salvadorian, um, you know, whose national team hardly does well, so they, um, you know, they'll, they'll root for the for Team USA, um, and that's when the dividing line starts to happen. Um, so that's that that's made it that's made this um, rivalry within our own little group of, uh, or not little, but this group of, of Hispanics, um, uh, you know, divide us into, into different fans. And, um, yeah, that, that, that's one of the things around in LA that you see a lot, like, when it comes to, like, rivalry. It's the, the small, it's the Mexicans who root for the national team against the, the other Hispanic Americans who, you know, align themselves with rooting for the U.S., that's an interesting that's an interesting sort of divide you're talking about and i mean it makes sense when you kind of lay it out and with you know and it, it, it's got to be tough though i i mean it does have to be a little bit of a of an i guess an interesting situation in that there is sort of geopolitical stakes to it yeah like yeah, and I, and, I, and i say for example like i can root for france and no one is going to call me anti-American. Yeah. You root for yeah. Mexico against the United States, and you're a Mexican-American, and you were born in this country. That's sort of that's the sort of di- dichotomy that is so unique. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, the, that's that's one of the tough things that 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 you, I mean I'm not gonna use Twitter as, as everyone's voice, but, you know, you see people who, who, I mean, you know how toxic Twitter can be. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you see a lot of, oh, but you were born and raised. You have some shaming, you know, there's people who, who pride, I guess, pride themselves on, on being American, uh, even though they're Hispanic, which, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to say there's nothing wrong with that, but, um, there's people who like to shame others for, for you know, just rooting for, for, for the team that, that their parents, or, you know, their country of their parents and grandparents. Um, they try to make you feel less um, 
American that they, I, I don't get why, but you know they they there's there's instances where they, they try to make you feel like you're a traitor. I don't know why, but um, like I, I, that's something I, I guess sports and politics, although people don't like to have them intertwine, are always intertwined. Um, um, but but yeah, that's that's one of the things that that I've like, growing up that I've come to realize and notice um, that that rooting for the your you know the the country that I mean technically you weren't born in or raised in. Uh, against you know the country that you were actually born and raised in yeah it's it's also it comes down to that idea of identity and it's it's a long conversation you can have about just what makes up your identity whether your identity is made up through your experiences or it's made up sort of through your birth and through what you know genetics you've been given and I look at it as overall rivalry that's benefited the United States, and I think it's benefits. I think it benefits both countries when both teams are good, and when both teams are competitive. Which is why I'm sort of not. Um, which is why I'm I'm sad that the United States are not in the World Cup this year because in past years we've had that ability to sort of watch the U.S. team and then watch Mexico. Now it really is going to be on Mexico to sort of represent this region. And the pressure, I think, is really going to be on because more than ever, I think the Fox broadcasts and the, and the general you know, broadcasts of this World Cup in this country are going to be Mexico-centric. Yeah. Yeah. So um, pretty much the ratings are going to rely on Mexico you know, getting past you know, their group, which we'll, we'll, you know, get into detail in a, in a moment, but they're going to rely on, on Mexican viewership to drive their ratings, to drive in, you know, their money um, that they hope to make. And, you know, this is their first year broadcasting the World Cup, and it wasn't ideal for the U.S. to be eliminated. So now they got to um, switch their, you know, their 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 mantra. Um, I'm not sure if you saw any of the Mexico friendly. But they were their advertisements were you know heavy, heavy you know towards Mexico, even saying that this is the home of L3, you know, and and all that stuff. Um, so they're trying to do their best to get Mexican viewership. Which I'll be honest, um, it's going to be hard because uh, Me- Me- all 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 the matches that Mexico Mexican watch when it comes to the national team are on Spanish uh, broadcasters or broad, you know, or, um, television sites. Um, this year, uh, the, the World Cup's going to be on Telemundo. Um, previous year, it was on Univision, and, and that's the, the thing um, that I think Fox will have an issue with is trying to interrupt, a, a, I'm not going to say a tradition, but close to a tradition of just watching the Mexican national team on Spanish-speaking um, television stations. One of the things I noticed in the last World Cup that ESPN did in, in 2014 was that they used a Mexican announcer. They used two Mexican announcers. Well, a Mexican announcer and a Mexican color analyst, I believe, for all of the um, for all of the L Tree games. 
And I'm assuming that Fox is going to try to do the same thing. Do you think that makes any bit of difference? Or is it just simply they're going to want to listen that some, if not a majority of Mexican or Mexican-Americans are going to want to listen to the game in Spanish? Um, they, I've actually noticed they brought one of the guys from Rony Stone to do their English commentating. I also got, uh, what's his name, Fernando Fiore to, to help with the uh, pregame stuff with, yeah. you know, Alessio Wallace and, and all that. So they're trying to incorporate more, you know, bilingual speakers into their, to their broadcast to try to, you know, get more Spanish. I guess, I guess what they want is that they're, they want the Mexican Americans who speak English more than they do Spanish to help, you know, help to reach out to them and try to help, you know, try to make them prefer watching it in English rather than Spanish. But that's, um, I, I guess for me personally, I enjoy watching it in Spanish because that's how I grew up watching the games, whether it be Univision or Telemundo. I always, I always grew up watching that. So for me personally, I'll probably watch the matches in, in Spanish. Um, I do tend, if the game is not on, like, I, don't, I have, um, I get, I stream all my game matches through my PlayStation View, so I don't have any stuff. So the only time I watch any broadcast, it's because, um, you know, if it's the Mexican national games are on FS1, so I'm able to watch it there. But, you know, if I had a choice, I, I obviously would watch it in Spanish. So, you know, I don't think that's going to make much of a difference. Um, I mean, they're trying their best, but I guess, like, we, st- we started talking earlier, it's all about traditions, and... and for, for most of us, it's probably going to be watching it in Spanish because that's just the way, you know, we've been watching the World Cup since, you know, we can remember. What's the difference between the way the Mexican announcers will call a game and the way sort of an American or even a British announcer will call a game? Just for yeah. just for the people that may, may not listen to a lot of Spanish um, yeah. broadcasts. Yeah, no, it's, it's because I just I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but because I think a lot of the times, if you're looking at it from the outside, I think a lot of people sort of see it as a stereotype, which is the yeah. which is the over caffeinated announcer going go for a really 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 long time, and that's kind of yeah. all you get out of that, which is it's sort of this over the top cartoon announcing, yeah. but I I know there's more subtlety to it than that. Yeah, no, it's, it's just, for me, it's, it's, it, I mean, I'll be honest, sometimes a match can be, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, some matches can be boring. Um, I know Mexico played um, uh, Croatia one to nothing and on the friendlies uh, during the international period a couple weeks ago, and I watched it um, um, from FS1's point of view, um, and I'll be, I'll be honest, it's, it was kind of a snooze fest um, because I mean the, the guy they did bring in a Mexican um, announcer to, to, to try to broadcast the games, but I mean to, he isn't one of the best. I mean, if you speak to any um, Mexican that watches um, soccer on Univision because that's where he came from. He came from Univision, and he's not one of the best. Um, I would say he's like the third. Um, go-to guy, um, so they, they, right off the bat, they didn't grab the best one, and, you know, when you watch it in Spanish, for us, it's more, it's, it's captivating, I mean, I know the over-top goals, um, calls can be cartoonish, and 
annoying for some, but it, when you hear that loud goal, you know, prolonged or prolonged goal, it's all you hear when all you hear is just people getting more excited and and it adds that extra excitement energy to that goal, especially if it is a a game, you know, a big a, a, a big time goal. Um, it, it brings more for 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 the fans. It, it gives you a taste of of what's going on inside on, inside the stadium. Um, it's just that's just my personal um, uh, takeaway yeah. from from that. It's just it's it's more exciting when at times soccer can be too tactical, too um, relying on parking the bus. You know, for 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 a phrase that everybody likes to use sometimes. Yeah, very very well said. And I, just before we go to our next topic, I want to go back to the United States-Mexico thing for a minute. I just want to get your thoughts on Jonathan Gonzalez. And just sort of one of the examples of an American-born, Mexican, um, Mexican heritage who played for the United States uh, under-17s, under-18s, and under-20s, but when it came to decide his... Um, senior team to decide his club, his national team of choice, he chose Mexico. And I think that speaks to a few things. I think it speaks more to, I think it speaks more to the incompetence of American um, soccer. But as a fan of the Mexican national team and as second generation um, Mexican, how do you think he gets received in that sort of, he's, Mexican, but he's kind of not a first generation. He's not. He doesn't live there, and he's now playing for the Mexican national team. Well, I think he'll get a because he actually plays for a Mexican uh, La Liga MX um, team, Monterrey. So I think he'll get a pass because he'll. He's already play. He's not. He's playing MLS. Like for example, Carlos Vela was perceived as. Um, going to inferior competition to go play for, you know, the new LAFC club. Um, so I think he will get a pass because he's already playing for a, uh, uh, a team in Mexico. So it's not like they're they're giving a spot to someone who, who, who is playing in MLS. And hopefully you can touch on this for a little bit. But, you know, Mexican spirit, there's a few other... Speaking of divide, there's another divide right there. Yeah, go ahead. Within, you know, Latinos who who prioritize Liga MX over MLS. So, so any Mexican star or, or young player that's on the rise that you know wants to to eventually either end up in a big time club, either it be Mexico, maybe Europe, or, or stay in the MLS, um, if they want to. If they if they have hopes to be the playing for either Mexico or maybe the U.S. team, but for Mexicans, they, they would see if they were to allow a, a player from MLS as why are you letting a player from inferior competition um, play on our on our on our national team? So if, I mean, if, if Jonathan Gonzalez was playing for Galaxy or Seattle Sounders, that's the way he would have been perceived over as. He's actually playing for uh, a Mexican team, so he'll probably get a pass by 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 many Mexicans because he's playing for Monterrey. Um, but as uh, going back to his uh, his initial, the initial comment, um, I think that 
that's going to be a, uh, an issue that's going to become that's going to keep occurring. This is the first instance because many first generation Mexicans were born in the nineties. So a lot of these kids are already growing up. Some of them are, it's too late for them, but a lot of 90, late nineties, 2000 kids are growing up. They're in their, their 15, 16, 17 age. And that's when you really start, you know, catching the eyes of, of, of clubs. Um, so that's, that they're going to have those decisions, um, very quickly and, and to, and to decide whether they want to, you know, pursue a career here in the United States, uh, playing for an MLS club or, you know, go with their parents' culture and, and go to Mexico and go to a country they've probably never been to or only uh, traveled to on occasion and live there and pursue a, a career there. So um, that, this is, it's not going to be the first time that someone shuns the U.S. to play for Mexico that's a Mexican-American, but it's going to be a, a recurring issue, I believe, going forward from here on out. It's also it's also interesting that the sort of um, emergence of the MLS as a not equal to uh, Liga MX, but as somewhat uh, salient competi- uh, salient competition, in that you saw Toronto FC um, get past Club America, which is one of the top clubs in Mexico, and you saw now Chivas got by New York Red Bull, and we're talking about the uh, Concacaf. Champions League or whatever they call it. So you're seeing those leagues sort of become more similar in quality than they had been, which I think also uh, drives to what you're saying. But while you're getting the the um, the emergence of MLS, I think you're getting a bit of a decline in U.S. soccer. And I think you know not to get and we'll cover this on another show with another guest. But I feel like. United States soccer is on a decline in a number of ways. So I'm actually not surprised that someone would decide to play for the Mexican national team as opposed to the United States. Now, let's talk for a minute about Mexico's World Cup history and not the team's history, but just sort of they've had two World Cups. They had a World Cup in 1970 and they had a World Cup in 1986. And in both of those in both of those competitions Mexico got to their highest um, point as a national team in general by getting to the quarterfinals of both of those World Cups so just talk about sort of briefly Mexico's history in the World Cup at least from the standpoint of hosting those two and how that sort of helped to grow the game in that country? Yeah, um, I did my own little research on this. Um, seeing that I wasn't alive back then. Um, but Neither was I. Yeah, no, it's helped the game grow immensely. Uh, I mean, from the standpoint that, you know, there's, they're starting to expect more out of their, their team. It, that, that was like the... The, the birth of expecting to obviously get past the group stage. Um, so the, hosting the World Cup, and it, it also, uh, um, I guess, solidified their, their, their I guess, uh, thought of, you know, they have the potential to be, uh, to, to compete and, 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 and 
go toe-to-toe with some of the bigger clubs in Europe and South America. So that's, that's one of the things that, from what I've read, um, they came away or, you know, they took away from hosting the World Cup and, and you know, finishing, you know, they're really high uh, in those two um, World Cups. Well, you look at the history of Mexico and the World Cup. And the World Cup started in 1930. Before that World Cup in 1970, they had never gotten past the group stage of a World Cup. And that first time they got by it, the first time they got into the quarterfinals was in that 1970 World Cup. And it was the first World Cup to be held on North American soil. And part of what the... Um, World Cup, or you, what the part of what FIFA wants to do with the World Cup is use the um, World Cup and the allure of hosting it to grow the game in different parts of the world. That's one of the reasons you saw it in South America. That's one of the reasons you're going to see it in Qatar in 2022. And that's the reason that I really believe that Morocco is going to beat the uh, United States, Mexico, Canada bid in 2026. They want to sort of grow the game into these different parts of the world. Mexico was already, I believe, receptive to it, just again because of the, um, the Spanish connection. But I think you have to say that those World Cups really did open up the potential of the Mexican national team, which, if you look at it, you go 74, they didn't qualify, 78, the group stage, 82, they didn't qualify, 86, they got to the group stage, and I'm just pulling it up as we speak now, they were in group B, they got through on five points, it was a weird, uh, looked like a weird group, a lot of draws, And in the um, Stadio Azteca, which we're going to talk about very shortly, they beat Bulgaria 2-0 in the round of 16. And they lost on penalties to West Germany in the quarterfinals. They were a penalty shootout away from making it to the quarterfinal, to the, sorry, to the semifinals of a World Cup, which at that point in Mexico's uh, national team history would have been absolutely unheard of. And that was the, the, and just for reference, I believe that was the um, Hand of God um, World yeah, Cup yeah. with Diego Maradona. So let's go after that. Now, in 1990, Mexico got banned from World Cup competition. Now, I'm not sure how much you remember about this, but, um, or read up about it, but they had this thing where they, um, they, uh, had, you think, underaged players or overaged players. And they were found... Let me see if I can even just bring this up really quickly. But, um... Yeah, um... They had, uh, overaged players during the 1988 Olympics. Which, um... Again, that seems like a harsh penalty, but, um... I guess it, it could work. But ever since then, and this is where this rambling is getting to... Mexico has made it out of the group stage every year since 1990. Which, making it out of the group stage of a World Cup is a big deal for certain teams. And if you're Mexico, I think in 94, 98, 2002, 2006, 
I think that's a big deal. Now, my question is, have we gotten to a point where that is no longer an acceptable benchmark? Should should they be better than a round of 16 team? Or are is the round of 16 still acceptable to you? Or just to Mexican fans in general? Yeah. Uh, well, first expectation is to always get out of the group stage. Like, that, that's the bar. That's the... The, the, the minimum. The bar goes from... Yeah, that's the minimum. Um, any, if, if they were... Uh, I know um, if they were to not make the out of the group stage, it would be a disaster. And they'll be having summit. They'll be... It would just be a disaster for, for, the, for the fans, teams, or the team, uh, and, you know, anybody that is involved with the national team. So the round of 16 is always expected. That's, that's, since I can remember, I think, the 2002 World Cup that I can, like, that's the first World Cup that I can fully remember since that day, or since that, I've come, I've grown, my expectations have grown and always making out of the group stage. That's, that's the bar, that's the minimum. Um, For them, I think, making it past the round of 16 is becoming an, an expectation. Um, quarterfinals, I mean, if they can reach the, the, the semifinals for us is always, um, that's, that's the goal, semifinals. Anything after that is it's gravy. Um, whether they win it or don't, anything past that is it's just gravy for us. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's weird how they've, um, uh, when I was reading up on it, how they've always struggled in the World Cup, um, and had, uh, just a few, uh, I guess, um, Cinderella runs uh, the year they hosted it to the 90s or the late 90s where they started to make it past the group stage and in the 2000s consistently making it out of the group stage and now where it's um, for any it's just not the World Cup for any national tournament they've it, the expectation is get out of the group stage like that that's what we expect out of out of every player and and, and that represents the country to, to that that's the ball that's the bar right there get out of the group stage. After that, quarterfinals are always, um, I, it always depends who we play, but for the most part, they we expect them to win at least that game. Mexico is also in that unique situation where they don't, you know, the, the Copa, the, um, the, what I guess you would call the equivalent of the European Championship, I think which is the Gold Cup. I, I was I was searching for that name. It's the CONCACAF Gold Cup. Now, usually the CONCACAF Gold Cup is either won by Mexico or the United States, sometimes Costa Rica. Pretty much it's the same two, three teams. And it, it, it's, it's like there's not... It, it's not like if Mexico wins the Gold Cup, it's this major, major accomplishment. It's not like, let's say, Germany or France or England winning the Euros or... Brazil or Argentina winning the Copa America. It's just the competition's just not at that same level. So, really, Mexico's benchmark is always the World Cup. There's no really other competition where Mexico can measure itself. And I think that adds a little bit of the pressure. And let's go just back to those World Cups. 2002, they lost in the quarterfinals to the United States, which um, definitely did not go over particularly well. In 2006, and that United States-Mexico game has to have been the biggest 
uh, high-stakes game between those two teams. And yeah. the fact that the United States have that um, have that sort of um, that ace that they can throw out is that's got to eat a little bit. recent results 2006 I don't know if you remember this they beat they lost to Argentina in extra time two goals to one in 2010 let's go to it wonders of the internet um, Mexico lost to Argentina again three goals to one that was the Messi that was the uh, Lionel Messi team so no shame there. And then 2014, we get to, I um, it's I think it's a famous three word phrase in uh, Mex in Spanish. Yeah. I'll let no you take it over. No era penal. Go ahead. Yeah, no era penal against uh, the Netherlands and Adrian. Were you watching uh, that game? Adrian Robert. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's one that. amazing about that too was Mexico was perfectly positioned in that bracket like to pull up that bracket if you have a computer in front of you yeah. and look yeah, at right they had if they had won that game and Ochoa was and um, Guillermo Ochoa had been standing on his head the entirety of the World Cup to that point now you go up to the group stage. Connected successfully. If you go up to the group stage, and you see where um, Mexico was, they had a tough group in that group, by the way. You there? Yeah. All right, hold on. I just got it. There we go. So I'll edit that out. Um. We go to this group, Brazil, Mexico, Croatia, Cameroon. That's a ridiculously difficult group. With Croatia in there too. Croatia's not a uh, Croatia's not an easy team. 
They tied Brazil on points. They lost on goal differential. Ochoa stood on his head. Mexico beat Cameroon. They tied Brazil, and then they beat Croatia 3-1. to But then you look at that if you have it in front of you. The next team they would have played was Costa Rica. Mexico could have beaten Costa Rica. Yeah. And in that case, Mexico would have been in the World Cup semifinals against Argentina. So that penalty, that's a tough one. Because that might have been one of Mexico's best chances. Now, let's talk about this year. And just sort of the stars of the Mexican national team right now. And where you think their quality is compared to recent years or recent World Cup runs? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, first I'll, I'll start off with the guys up there that are playing in Europe. Um, the golden boy right now is um, uh, Irving Lozano. Um, he's taking that golden boy uh, title from obviously Chicharito Hernandez, who plays for West Ham, um, while Lozano plays for PSV. And more than likely, in a year or two, we'll, we'll leave the Netherlands, um, who knows where. Um, but he's, he's the, the young talent that everybody's really, really excited about. And for good reason, I mean, uh, I, I think it was against the, 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 I think it was Iceland, if my memory serves correct, where he helped create, the, the, he helped create a, a, a goal scoring chance. So everybody's excited about him, and obviously uh, Hernandez is, is probably this is probably going to be his last World Cup with with the national team. I mean, um, so he'll be he'll be an integral part of the team. Um, there's other players such as um, I think Raúl Jiménez, who plays for uh, he's a super sub for Benfica. Um, I think uh, Andres Guardado, who plays for Real Betis. And then you get a lot of like uh, the Leicester, uh, I guess there's big names that play for an MLS like Carlos Vela, uh, the Los Santos brothers who play for LA Galaxy, and then obviously um, Jonathan Gonzalez had his uh, he made an appearance for the national team. So there's like a lot of young talent that's mixing in with veteran talent. So it's not this isn't um, like a like say La Netherlands. Um, four years ago, where it's just all talent in their late 20s, early 30s. This is a, a team that, for those who don't watch, it's a mixture of young and old. Um, so it's, it's, it's they're going to depend a lot on the young, young players, um, and as well as their veterans. Yeah, and um, you're seeing, you're describing a turnover in the roster, which is what all good national teams should be able to do. If you're able to sort of uh, get a good eight, six to eight year run out of a roster out of a core group and then sort of rotate that group out and bring in a new core of players like you're not going to see rafa marquez in this world cup i i yeah. would i wouldn't think and that would be probably because off the field actually um, just to cut you off right there everybody every mexican fan wants to see him one more time really <laughs> everybody wants to see him yeah they want to see him one more time it's just this people affair where they have with him it's it's a uh, I think because he's done a lot. Like he's he's one of the few Mexican players that's gone to Europe and played for big clubs and won. You know, he's won for he's won a lot. He's, I mean, he's played for Monaco. He's played for Barcelona. Um, the, the two clubs that, that a lot of Mexicans identify with him. 
Um, I'm sure there's others I'm, I'm missing at the top of my head, but a lot of Mexican fans want like they, this is like they want to see him one last kick at the can because like you know this love affair they have with him. Um, but obviously due to off the field issues or off the pitch issues that a lot of people might not know about. Yes, just for the record, Rafa Marquez is 39 years old, coming off of I believe drug trafficking charges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. But they love him. The reason why. <laughs> They love him anyway. Um, what about Ochoa? I I'm I love Ochoa. I I love the hair. Yeah, I he I is, I, I love I love like, the. I just think as a he's 32 years old. I thought he was the one of the stars of the 2014 World Cup. Like he's one of the five names that I remember from that World Cup, and that's including. Yeah. Lionel Messi and Aaron Robin and um that that's counting all of those names counting Tony Cross he's up there in names is he how is he viewed uh is he viewed in the same way that let's say maybe to a lesser extent but to the way Gianluigi Buffon is viewed in um Italy or Neuer in Germany uh. No, I don't. I mean, there's, there's, he has his core group of supporters that will support him to stick with him. But then there's this other that he's a lightning rod. Because, they, like you said, they've seen his flashes of world-class potential. And then he does, does uh, he, he, he disappears. I mean, the game against Chile um, is a prime example that a lot of Mexican, some Mexican fans had, had enough of him. Um, I guess, it, I mean, it just heated the moment. I mean, he's been one of, he's been a steady point in, in that for them for like almost close to a decade now. Um, but there's, there's not, there's no line that there's a, there's, there's this core group that will support him to different them, but then there's this other half where uh, he's a lightning rod for him. I mean, if, if people could have just seen the, 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 the Twitter um, during that 7-1 loss to Chile, what, two years ago, um, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, backlash for him. Um, which is expected when when you when you give a fan base you know this you show them that you're capable of being a world class goalkeeper. Yeah, I feel bad. I I feel bad for any player who has performed at that high level for year not even for year but has performed at that high level on the highest possible stage against the best possible teams. I mean, the guy shut out Brazil, like. He shut out Brazil in Brazil. I can you can count the goalkeepers who have done that on maybe one hand. And he has a bad game, and it's just sort of the nature of the beast. It's the nature of the way people follow the game. The guy got, as you said, the guy got eviscerated by people who three years, two years before maybe even saw him as a godlike figure. And that's just sort of the game in general. And I compare that to how I think Americans view Tim Howard. I think Tim Howard is, or was this legendary figure in the United States soccer scene, but his decline has been pretty rapid over the last couple of years. But I really do feel like most people in America will go, Tim Howard you know, he's past his prime, let's move him on, but thanks for the memories. I don't know if the Mexican soccer culture is exactly the same way when it comes to Guillermo Ochoa. Yeah, I mean, I think, 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 I
they, they, I think once you get get some time, they will be. I mean, a lot of um, fans still love. They still have this love affair again with, uh, like you said, Rafa Marquez, um, Guatemo Blanco. There's like all these old Mexican players that I guess once you get older, you realize, well, they were they were really good players that you know I got to see and you know either grew up grew up watching. So I think once once the dust settles on his career, that a lot of uh, I think they'll view him in the same light as they do um, Jorge Campos, the another gold central goalkeeper that that you know that, that a lot of Mexicans remember. Um, I think that that it's gonna take some time. I, I this World Cup will go a long way. Of, I guess putting a final nail in his uh, career, like how we'll remember him as a Mexican national team player. And. I agree with that as well. We're going to go into two more things before we uh, before we go. Um, let's talk about Mexico's home field advantage, the Estadio Azteca. And it's, again, as an American soccer fan, there's sort of a mythology behind that stadium and the altitude and the, the, the fans. And it's just like, describe what's that, because the United States doesn't really have that. And a lot, some countries, you know, Germany doesn't really have that. I mean, I guess you would go, you'd say Berlin, the Berlin Stadium. I mean, England has Wembley. Um, Spain has the Bernabeu, which I'm assuming Spain has the Bernabeu um, or the Wanda Metropolitano. But I don't think a lot of teams, a lot of national teams, have that that type of stadium that Mexico has. Just kind of briefly about the legend of the Estadio Azteca. Yeah, no, um, I remember that. That's like the cathedral of Mexican soccer. Like it's, like, I mean, I'm pretty sure any knowledgeable soccer fan knows that. But for those who aren't aware, like Mexican soccer or anything, I mean, they just heard about it or read about it. That's like the cathedral there. That's um, that's that's the, the whole the holy place. Um. That, that that arena or that stadium, like you said, the altitude, the prestige, that that stadium is is there are no it's gonna be a hundred percent Mexican supporters. Like there is no way um, other fan bases. Are, I mean, they might get you might get a few scattered here and there, but it's not like um, where European national team you know supporters travel well with 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 their country. Uh, that. Uh, that uh, stadium is going to be close to 100% capacity, or close to 100% capacity, and nearly 100% are going to be pro, you know, Mexican national team. And you can't understate how playing the game of soccer at 7,000 feet in the air affects you as an athlete. Like, it's just, it's a different, it's a different thing. It's right outside Mexico City, right in the mountains, and if you've never played in that, to try to go to that stadium with your regular training and play in seven play seven thousand feet in the air, where the air is just quite frankly thinner, there's less oxygen. So it's sort of interesting how Mexico has created this advantage for itself at home and you think at some point maybe that how do you think that even translates to how they play 
normally. I mean, a lot of Mexico is, there's a lot of mountains in Mexico. So yeah, I, they're, they're very used to altitude. But just that idea of how you play a game in 7,000 <laughs> 7, feet in the air. Yeah, they use it to their advantage, and, and I guess it's for me. For, for me, I think it gets a lot of a lot of uh, it gets into a lot of the opponents' heads because that's going in. They already have an advantage. The the uh, for example, I'm, I think it was it a year ago or a year and a half ago where the U.S. was I don't know how they were able to scrap a one-one tire um, when they were when they were able to go to Mexico. And I think Bradley, you know, again, this is. Going back to Ochoa, this is why he gets uh, a lightning rod. He made a mistake, and Bradley was able to score from nearly, you know, the ha- uh, the halfway, uh, the midpoint of, of the pitch. Um, but I, I, teams going in there, it's, it's, it's a draw is always expected. That, that's the if they can go to really the draw, it will feel like a win. But like you said, um, a lot of uh, a lot of I guess Mexico, Mexico, the national team trains there. They, they're able to, you know. They're able to uh, play uh, with the uh, altitude um, advantages, but for me personally, I think it's more that they can use this as a, as a psychological advantage because a team that's never played there before, you know, never played in this kind of uh, circumstance, it's it's going to be all mental, and if they are already just preparing for the altitude, you know. That's already a disadvantage because, um, you know, it's like you said, soccer is all tactics. And, and, very, and if they stray away from their tactics thinking, okay, more, how are we going to play in this uh, weather or, this, you know, this environment, uh, the advantage already goes to Mexico. Hmm. And that's another, that's, uh, I think that one's on my bucket list. It's probably not at the top of the list, but I, if, if I was ever offered a chance to go to Mexico City, I think that's one of the places that I would just like to be and to see and to feel that atmosphere. Uh, 2018, um, Mexico's group, Germany, Sweden, and South Korea, they're in Group F. If they lose, if they qualify out of that group in second place, there's a very good chance they play Brazil in the round of 16. If they win that group, there's a very good chance they play Switzerland or Costa Rica. So... A lot at stake in what I think is a sneaky competitive group, and not an automatic qualification for Mexico. Well, well, uh, but when um, the draw came, I mean, like I said, I worked with a lot of uh, Mexican soccer friends, so when I gave them, because I think the draw was early in the morning, so when I told them who they drew, uh, especially with Germany, after you know, did they play them? in the Confederations Cup where Germany used their, I guess, quote-unquote, B team, um, and they were able to beat, you know, a lot of the, of the Mexicans that are going to be regulars with the, with the national team. Um, not handily, but they were able to just, you know, dispose of them easily. Um, yeah, that, 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 that having Germany uh, really, they, their expectation is the second um, or bust. Um, because they know Germany's probably going to get the first, get the first, but, you know, barring any disaster, um, already, um, they'll probably get second. Um, but the expectation is, um, yeah, they can beat Sweden and they can probably beat Korea. So it's second, sec- second or bust for, for this group, which 
on Beckett's. It's probably the big, the the most competitive um, group in, in 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 the group stage. And and that's the thing too. That Germany Mexico game, I believe, is the first one in that group. So if Mexico can get a draw out of that, if they can somehow draw that game, they have a really good shot because then it essentially would come down to goal differential, and it's by how much you can beat Sweden and South Korea by. Sweden's not a pushover team, and and South Korea is okay, but they're not, they really shouldn't be a threat to Mexico in that situation. But again, then you get that tough matchup in the round of 16, and it's, you know, you take your chances with what you got, but um, your thought, your prediction, you think What's your um, what's your um, early sort of thought of what's going to happen? I think they'll be able to get to the group, at least out of the group stage. I mean, like you said, Sweden is no pushover. I mean, Italy found that out the hard way, albeit you know they made some questionable you know managerial tactics and decisions on who they left in or who they started and who they who they left on the bench. But you know, Sweden was able to eliminate Italy. Uh, I mean, so they they they. They've gotten to this point, you know. I would say Italy is at least, um, you know, at least maybe, at least on par with Mexico, or maybe a little bit, of, a, a little bit ahead. But, so, but you know, that, that they're not, they're not a cakewalk. So if they take Sweden, you know, lightly, then that's gonna come back to haunt them. And as you said, Korea, Korea's okay, um, but then they shouldn't um, possess any major threat. So. If they can beat Sweden, then I, I and and I fully expect them to beat Sweden and Korea, and hopefully just get a draw out of Germany. That that for me would be a win. But I fully expect them to um, get out of the group stage and uh, then take their chances with Brazil and see how how that um, team is performing. Um, because like a lot, like a lot of uh, there's a lot of expectations on them, so. Um, and, uh, like you said, just take their chances once they get out of there. Eduardo Razo, uh, tell the listeners how they can follow you and anything you may be um, anything you may be working on for the not too distant future. Yeah, um, my Twitter handle is Eddie E D D I E nineteen ninety one Razo R E Z O. That's my Twitter handle. Um, uh, and, uh, I'm finally finishing up this um, Alfonso Ariola piece that uh, I was in meaning to finish on the last time we discussed, but then you know the Tomas Tuco uh, rumors became, became started becoming um, actually true, and so I decided to steer clear of that or you know write up about that. Um, uh, and then midterms took over, but I'm finally getting this piece out. Should be out by. Should be, you know, ready to go in the next coming days. By the time you hear this, it would have been out for about three weeks. But yeah. um, <laughs> read it again. Read it again, yeah. please. We we well, need yeah, we need uh, the we need yeah. the page views. So, um, Eduardo Razo, thank you for coming on the World Cup project. Much appreciated. No problem, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, for Eduardo Razo, this has been your World Cup project host, Mark Damon. Au revoir for now. Thank you for listening to the World Cup Project. Our next episode will feature PSG Talk contributor Kose Espinosa. 
in our discussion of Spain's dominant run from 2008 to 2012. We also touch on Messi, Ronaldo, Argentina and Portugal, plus Uruguay and Colombia. The theme for the World Cup project is provided by the Dutch supergroup Oracle Breton, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes and Spotify. This show is brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site for all things Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on upcoming World Cup Project episodes. And as always, this is your host, Mark Damon, saying once again, au revoir for now. <laughs>